So what do preachers, meth, and prostitutes have in common? Sounds like a start of a bad joke, I know. But it's actually the title of this message. Preachers, meth, and prostitutes. You know, it's interesting because um, we actually did this message about 12 years ago. And of all the messages we've done in 20 years, none have gotten more hits on the web than that. And you wonder why. What is it that attracts us to a title like that? And maybe it's the sound of scandal, kind of like that Cage the Elephant song we just heard, right? We like scandal. We're attracted to it. Or, or maybe what, what draws us is, you know, kind of our disdain for organized religion because we felt judged or cast out, and it kind of sounds like it justifies that. Or, or maybe what draws us to the title Preacher's Meth and Prostitutes is the thought, well, if a church would talk about those three together, maybe this is a safe place for me. But Preacher's Meth and Prostitutes is actually the picture of the misfit community that Jesus was building 2,000 years ago, and he's still doing it right here among us today. Because you may not realize this, but sitting right around you are people here at Gateway from every imaginable past that you can think of, including my very good friend who had a 38-year cocaine addiction, who's now nine years sober and one of our, the leaders in our, uh, in our recovery ministry, uh, to Kenny, our central campus pastor, who was 10 years as a meth addict when he cried out in jail to God and has been sober ever since, to multiple people here at church who were human trafficked and even prostituted, uh, to others who were in jail for ethical failures, sex addicts, in fact, people with sexual past from just about every shade of gray. And, and those are actually people who have been leaders in our church. I know all of them. And now if that seems wrong to you, that those people would actually be leaders in our church, you're likely one of these people who are also found at Gateway. People with other pasts, highly moralistic, judgmental, grew up in church, feeling better than those people, preaching at them, but never really lifting a finger to care or show love or mercy toward those people. And then there are other people here who, you know, just do well. They're just the successful. You know, the, yeah, I had my little rebellious day, went out and got a Christian tattoo, you know, but I'm a pretty darn good person, if I do say so myself, which I do, but never out loud because that wouldn't seem humble. And I am humble, very. <laughs> the truth is we are a group of very misfit people who wouldn't ordinarily be found hanging out together, and yet here God is taking our paths, all sorts, and redeeming them, changing us, growing us, and even using our past for, for his good as this forgiven, come-as-you-are community. And, and that's what we're going to talk about in this series, that that's what Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago, but it's still what he's doing today, so there's a place for you. And it's important we understand so we can build it all together. Next week, we're going to talk about how we come from very diverse religious pasts here at Gateway. Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, Hindu, atheist, and Christian backgrounds. You don't want to miss that panel to find out where they came from and what brings us together. So don't miss that. But there's a place for everybody at the family table that God is setting. But in order to cooperate with what God's doing, we have to understand some things. Like, Jesus' ministry was scandalous. 
And, and that's actually what the religious leaders of his day did not like about Jesus and ultimately killed him because they didn't like God's scandalous plan. So it's critical that we understand, especially if you're coming from a church background that wasn't like what I'm gonna be talking about today. Because God's heart is to form a new family out of all willing people, no matter how relatively good or bad they may seem. And by the way, it actually turns out harder to categorize than you might think. So Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 22. He spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And those that he first invited made excuses. They didn't want to come. So he says, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Come as you are. It's God's invitation, good or bad, and I'll make you ready for the kingdom of heaven, he says, for the party of eternity. And here's what you gotta understand. You know, Austin doesn't actually uh, need more churches for the churched. You know, the, the, the world, I mean, in many places, doesn't need more churches for the, for the churched. We started a gateway for the 90% who don't do church. And, and the reason is, is because God cares about them just as much as those who are churched. Now, the problem is when churched Christians have an us-them mentality, they become more like the religious Pharisees of Jesus' day, but they miss the very heart of God just as much as the meth addict does. In fact, that's why Jesus said this to them, Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So here's the thing that's important to understand. A, a church full of mature Christians only is actually not mature at all. And it's not at all what Jesus was like. And that's why what we're talking about today is the best place for all of us to grow up into who God intended us to be. But you have to understand Jesus' ministry. So early on in Jesus' ministry, he calls Matthew. Uh, and Matthew decides to follow him. Now, Matthew had a past. Matthew was a tax collector, considered the sinner's of that day, those that the, the religious looked at as undesirable, wouldn't have anything to do with them. By the way, who are, who are the sinners for you? You know, we have, we have all kinds of categories of, of the outcasts, right? Maybe it is the partiers, maybe it's the gangsters, maybe it's the Republicans, or the Democrats, or the wealthy, or the homeless, or maybe it's Californians or New Yorkers who have moved and run up the prices of homes and kept you out of the market. Who knows, right? We have all kinds. But Jesus says to Matthew, come follow me. And Matthew is so excited, he gathers all of his party happy friends to meet Jesus. He wants his friends to meet Jesus. The religious don't like that. Look at what it says, Matthew chapter nine. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, the religious leaders saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go learn what this means. 
And he quotes the Old Testament, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus says, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, you may be missing Jesus' biting sarcasm here, but, but that's what's going on. Jesus is actually throwing shade on the religious leaders big time because they claim to love God and follow the Old Testament law, which Jesus later is going to quote and, and the Old Testament and say they do all the right religious things, but their hearts are far from God. And here he quotes Hosea 6.6, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now see, the, many people think God wants sacrifice. He wants you to do the, all the right religious things. He wants you to sacrifice and obey the moral law. And God, without a doubt, wants us to obey the moral law, but for the right reasons and out of the right motivations. See, the religious... They kept the laws on the outside, don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, honor the Sabbath, yet they miss God's heart. Why? Well, because God's desire is mercy. It's God's love and mercy that leads to a heart that actually changes from the inside out. God wants heart level change that doesn't want to lie or steal or kill. Why? Because we want to love the other as God loves us. It's a whole different motivation. The Pharisees, they were just trying hard on the outside to look good. It was a religious show. And so Jesus says with biting sarcasm, the healthy don't need a doctor. I have not come for the righteous, but for sinners. But who are these healthy, righteous people he's talking to? They're the people who are gonna crucify him. He didn't think they were healthy. He knew they were hiding behind religion. And he didn't think they were righteous. He, he knew they were, they were pugly self-righteous. So what Jesus is really saying is, I have come for all who realize they need help. The preacher who needs help loving and showing mercy over judgment. The meth addict who needs help overcoming. The prostitute who needs to see herself as God does, as a, a spiritual creature of immense value. You know, we have always said no perfect people allowed here. And, and the reason we say that, of course, is there are no perfect people. But sometimes we play the game and project an image that's a little bit better than we really are and then we stay stuck. And so what we're trying to create a, a, an environment where we all realize we need God's help. And God says you get mercy and grace and entrance into a new family, God's family. And when we learn to treat each other as God treats us, that changes everything. Listen to Melissa's story. Hi, I am Melissa and I have had a crazy life. I grew up in a traumatic environment. My parents were alcoholic. There was a lot of brokenness. Before 21, I was uh, abused in trauma, raped, addicted to drugs and alcohol, and ended up a junkie in prison. I was not really interested in anything except covering up everything that I wasn't in comparison to everyone else. I felt like I was a nobody. I became part of a gang 
we'll just say I broke a lot of laws. I was arrested multiple times for DUIs and finally for uh, burglary. So that was the start of jail and treatment centers, which then led to prison. I was in prison for a year and a half, and I transitioned to a halfway house. I moved out, met my now husband. We got married and bought a house and had a baby. Joseph and I had unresolved issues. They came crashing out in um, emotional abuse and verbal abuse, and I was unfaithful in the marriage. I had an affair. That led me to not being able to handle my recovery. I couldn't live a double life, and I drank. I drank right before my 15th year of sobriety. And I up and left in the midst of having the affair and I got my own place and I left the person that I was having the affair with and jumped into another relationship. I believed I was a fraud. I believed I was worthless. I didn't want to try anymore. I didn't want to live on this planet anymore. I was a ball on the bathroom floor, um, miserably sobbing, angrily praying to God, more like accusing God. Like, where was God? Why haven't you ever been here for me. Who are you? Like, I hate you. And why won't you, like, show up for me? Shockingly, God's response was to go to church, to get up, to go to church. I found Gateway through my longtime uh, hairdresser. She kept inviting me, and it wasn't pushy, and it wasn't like pressing, she just invited me. I went to Gateway South and signed up to serve and met Amber, who immediately put me in the greeting team. I was terrified um, because I didn't feel churchy. I had this idea about churchy people that they were perfect and I was not, certainly not the second day sober. I just felt like I was a hypocrite and like I'd be judged. I didn't feel judged. I didn't. I felt very welcomed and um, home, which is weird because I don't recall ever, ever feeling home. Greeting and church led to me reaching out to Eric, the pastor on staff at Gateway South, who connected me to Jamie, the restore pastor at the South Campus, who quickly ushered me to working the 12 steps. So initially when Eric asked me to uh, reach out to her, I was like, no way, not gonna happen. She'll never understand me. And so all that to be said, 
she helped me to get to know God and Jesus. And simply by walking with me and by praying. And like I was making good choices, more God-centered choices for the first time in my life. And my life was consistent and my life was full of peace. The people working with me in recovery, I saw Jesus through them. I felt again prompted to get baptized and I was baptized at Gateway South. And I continued to work the steps and work with people and eventually started to reconcile with my ex-husband. And we rejoined as friends initially to take care of the kids, um, which later became dating and which later became full-blown reconciliation and repair. and together. The surprise is that I would never have guessed that this is who I am. I love the church. I love the people. I love what I do. I love greeting. I love serving. I love helping. Lead the 12 Steps program down at the South Campus um, with multiple fantastic leaders, and that's my jam. I know my purpose now, I think for the first time in my life, and it is to help people recovering and give them um, my story. I get to have the life that I threw away, but better, like full of peace and happiness and joy. Joy is something that I never experienced. And so now to be able to have my family together and celebrate God, I think that's the best That's the best. I am blessed. My life is good. God's grace and power and love has just just monumentally changed my entire life. It does not look anything like it looked four years ago. There's no resemblance. I went from a tragedy to triumph. I went from being a statistic to (laughs) a survivor. Not awesome. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, that's what's kept me going for 22, 23 years. Thousands of stories like that. And we need to understand what God's doing so we can cooperate with God together. And that means we got to understand how do people really grow? How do people really change? And it starts with receiving and living in grace and then learning to give grace. So what it talks about in Romans chapter 8 where it says this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus, from the power of sin that leads to death. See, when we receive God's grace, and anyone, anywhere, at any time can, by a simple act of the will, just a, I want it. That's all it takes. And then God moves us from this state of of judgment and condemnation to this state of full acceptance and adoption in his family. And that's what Romans 8 goes on to say. So now uh, we have received a spirit not that makes us fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. 
And now we call him Abba. It's the word for daddy, father. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he give us everything else too? And I'm convinced nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, or angels, nor demons, neither our fears of today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. And friends, that is how people grow and change. When they learn to live in this connection with the God of love, and they start to trust, and then God starts to change us from the inside out at the heart level. And then we mature to become people who actually offer grace-giving acceptance to others who need it as well. See, that's the center line of faith. And it's the center line of what God has been doing here among us, what he's doing 2,000 years ago, what he's doing here, creating this come-as-you-are culture because that's how God accepts everyone, as is, regardless of their past. No matter where they've been or what they've done, he takes them from there and he moves them into the state of full acceptance. Why? Because we were never intended to become who God created us to be apart from God. It's never the intent. And so we need that. That's how we grow. Now, once we do, we have a role to play. Paul actually talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. But we are co-workers in God's service. Now, here's the important thing to understand. Your job and my job is not to change, fix, or grow anybody. You can't. That's God's job. Only God grows people and only with their willingness. So that means your job and my job is just to let God grow me, for you to let God grow you, to trust him in that. But then we're his coworkers and our job is the soil, not making the plant grow, just making the soil or the environment, the, the type of soil that God can use. And what is that? It's the environment where people feel and experience the love and value God has for them from us. And then that helps them want to trust God more and more. So we have to become people who show others how God feels about them even before they come to know God. Can you do that? You know, because sometimes Pharisee preacher types can tend to struggle with this messy misfit community in church. Because they can tend to think that they, they're good on their own, that, that they somehow earned it. They put a lot of stock in their own moral virtue and doing good, but they can totally miss God's plan for them because of it. And now let me just say, if that's you, there's hope for you too. See, Jesus died for your heart to change as well, to redeem you and change and grow you, come as you are, but don't stay that way. Don't stay stuck. Let's, let's grow together. Now, many Pharisee types back in Jesus' day had heart changes. Nicodemus, uh, you know, uh, Joseph of the Arimathea, Paul. They, they all became leaders in the church. And they were once Pharisees, right? But they became humble and willing to change. And that's what we also have to do. Be willing to change just like we expect of others. 
So another time, Jesus addressed both groups. Listen to what he said. This is uh, Luke chapter 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. But this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating and hanging out with them. So Jesus told them this story. Actually, he told them three stories. He wanted to make sure they got it. So the first story he tells is of a shepherd who has 100 sheep, but one wanders off and gets lost, and he leaves 99 to go find the one. And when he finds it, here's the so what Jesus says. In the same way, because the, the shepherd celebrated, in the same way there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents or turns back and returns to God than over 99 others who were righteous and haven't strayed away. He tells a second story about a woman who had 10 coins but loses one, so sweeps the house until she finds it, and then she celebrates. And the point, Jesus says, is in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents or turns back to God. Then he tells a third story of a prodigal son and an older brother and a wealthy father. And the prodigal son demands his inheritance for his, from his father, which back then would have been like saying, hey, dad, why don't you just die? Like, I, I don't care. Just give me my money. And the father strangely agrees and divides his, his estate between the older and the younger son. But the younger son moves to Vegas, parties away all his money on drugs, sex, rock and roll, escorts, gambling, ends up homeless. It's the JLT version of the Bible. John's little translation, but actually very accurate to what Jesus actually said. And he ends up starving and remembers that his father's hired hands lived better than he was, so he decides to come back and just beg his father to take him on as a servant. Jesus goes on. While the prodigal son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Why? He was looking for him. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Pause. Remember, this is God the Father Jesus is talking about. God runs to you when you make the smallest turn back to him. Isn't that amazing? He goes on. His son said, Father, I've sinned both against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him and kill the calf we've been fattening. We have to celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Do you have the heart of the father toward people who maybe are far from God, broken, struggling, addicted, wounded, maybe wounded by even their own pride or stupid mistakes? Does your heart look for them and love them and welcome them like the father? If not, this is where your moral failure is. But hey, that's okay, because God can heal your heart too, all of our hearts, if you're just humble and willing. So Jesus goes on. Meanwhile, the older son, remember he's talking to Pharisees as well, was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother's back, he was told. And your father killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. Angry and wouldn't go in. Refused. His father came out and begged him. 
But he said, all these years I've slaved for you, never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said, look, dear son, you've always stayed with me. You've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. Your brother who was lost, he's now found. Do you see the, the father's heart even to the prodigal? I mean, even to the older brother. All I have is yours. I do love you and I appreciate all you've done for me. But I love you not because of all you've done for me, because you're my son, I love you. Just as I love your younger brother. And I just want you to love him and us to be this loving family. That's all I want. But the older brother struggled. He said no. His pride wouldn't let him go in. Why? Well, because his identity was wrapped up not in being a a beloved son who had already been given half the estate. Now, he kept himself from doing anything and proving he was good, but he'd already been given half the estate. Father said, all I have is yours. But his problem was he was wrapped up. His identity was wrapped up in proving how good he was relative to others. And he cared more about how he looked on the outside and how good compared to others Then he cared about just experiencing the grace and love of the Father. If that's you, listen to Justin's story. My name is Justin, but everybody just calls me Girdler. Collared shirt, tucked in with a belt. That was the checklist my parents gave me every Sunday morning as we get ready for church. And if I didn't meet those criteria, I was sent right back upstairs to my room to fix it. Now, I'm not blaming my parents for some sort of stigma I grew up with, but one way or another, it kind of became the framework of how I saw God. If I didn't have these things in order, I'd be sent back to change it. Growing up, my life revolved around church. Wherever we moved, wherever we lived, our family was super involved in church on Sundays, Bible clubs on Wednesdays, volunteering on Saturdays. It was like this drive to being involved, which in my young developing brain, I saw this as like, this is what God expects. And then that little mantra, collared shirt tucked in with a belt, really became the lens through which I saw God. He was a checklist God. Have you done this? Check. Have you done that? Check. Uh Uh-oh, that needs to be fixed by tomorrow or (laughs) wrath of God and all that. To make God happy, I had to try to earn his approval. So I poured myself into every church activity I could. The student body president of our youth group. I was leading small groups, discipling younger kids. Every summer, I was on a missions trip. And when that wasn't hardcore enough, I started planning my own missions trips. So I'd go to Africa by myself or Asia or South America. And it was like I was trying to earn more merit badges. So church involvement, missions trips kind of became the way I saw my worth and it was the worth that I put on others. I saw them as like this lightweight, they're less mature. I mean, on the outside, I wasn't judging them, but on the inside, yeah, I was writing people off. But it was in the middle of this hypocrisy where God really got me. I was in Paraguay on a missions trip. 
and I didn't have much to do. I felt like I gave up my whole summer to be there. It was turning out to be a huge waste of time, and I was praying, God, why did you bring me here? I'm bored out of my mind. And I just heard these words, seek contentment. Read my word. Every time I felt bored that summer, I went to the Bible. And despite growing up Christian, despite church on Sundays and Bible club on Wednesdays, you know, all the small groups I'd been a part of, this time it was different. It might sound weird, but it was like God was reading it with me for the first time. And then one night, God brought me to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah in 64, 6, where it says, all of our good works are like filthy rags. And it was like that whole system I had constructed of doing things for him. I realized it would never be enough. Just deconstructing everything I'd put my work and my effort into that was based on how Christians look and how they act and the things that they do. And after that, all that mattered was grace. And experiencing Christ's grace was everything. God took my eyes off of how you look and appear and all the things that you do, and he set my new focus on being, just being who I am. And that's the added bonus. I get to be who I am. I get to be myself, continue to become a life-giving person rather than a rule-following person. And that is, hands down, made the biggest impact in my life to this very day. You know, that, that is what God's doing among us. Justin, Melissa, many, many others are all of us together watching God make us more and more life-giving people because grace is the start of true authentic heart change for preachers, for meth addicts, for prostitutes, for all of us. That's how God begins to change us into more life-giving people. And let me say, if you struggle to show Grace, we've had a little metaphor around here that we've used for years. Let me tell you about it. Um, my wife and I uh, lived for a year in St. Petersburg, Russia. And there is the Hermitage Museum that houses the original Rembrandts. My favorite painting, it's the return of the prodigal son. It's Rembrandt's painting of that scene in Luke 15 when the, the father runs to the son and embraces him. Now, this painting is worth millions and millions of dollars today because it's an original, right? But say you're visiting St. Petersburg, Russia, and you're walking out back the Hermitage Museum, and you come to a dumpster, and there in the dumpster, you find that painting, but you barely recognize it. It's covered in mud. It's stained. It's torn. But you can recognize this is Rembrandt's masterpiece. Now, let me ask you, would you treat it like mud, even though it's covered in mud? Would you treat it like trash, even though it's, it's in the trash can and it's, it's torn, it's damaged? I'm guessing if we re recognize the masterpiece, no, we wouldn't. We would all carefully and gently take it to a master who could restore it to its original value. We would realize that under the mud, it's still worth millions. Now, if we could all see that masterpiece under the mud in a painting, can we do the same thing in a person? Because you've never locked eyes with another human being that God didn't create as his masterpiece. No matter how muddied the behavior, no matter how irritating 
the stains, no matter how damaged they seem, there's a valuable masterpiece. And that's what Jesus saw in you when he died for you on the cross. But it's what he wants you to see in others as well. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, God saved you, or that just means set right related to him by grace. Grace means something you didn't deserve or earn. When you believed, all you had to do is say yes. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. For we are God's masterpiece. Everyone he created. And he's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. See, the problem is the Pharisees had no spiritual vision. They couldn't see past the mud of people's external behaviors. They devalued people based on what they saw. Jesus did the opposite. Did he see sinful junk that he wanted to change? Yes. You know, what, was there mud he wanted to remove from people's lives? Yes. But it only happens when people identify with the God who made them a masterpiece and begin to trust him to remove and restore them to what they were originally intended to be. So what do you see? When you encounter other people, do you see the mud and fixate on that? Or can you look past it to the masterpiece God created? What you focus on is what matters most to, change, to open doors for life change for people. So how do we cooperate with God to create this environment of grace where God can grow us all up into more and more of what he wanted, whether prodigals or older brothers? First, see the masterpiece in yourself. See the masterpiece in yourself. See, the problem with, with Pharisees or big brothers is actually the same exact problem prostitutes have, is they don't see themselves correctly. The, the Pharisee doesn't see the immense value that God already places uh, on his or her life, so they keep trying to earn it, keep trying to, to prove it, to prove their good, to defend, to judge, to prove something to the world. If that's you, you don't need to. You're loved as is. And, and learning how to live loved by God and by others, that's the key to moving forward. And let me just say, if that is you, get, get connected around here. Get in a community group. Get in a life group. Get in one of our restore groups. And, and be honest about that. No perfect people allowed. This is where I struggle. Because you can, God can use others to help you learn how to receive love without earning it. And it'll set you free. But it's the same exact problem that prostitutes have, quite honestly, that all of us have. You know, um, we have had people who have come out of the sex industry here at Gateway, and you know, they've told me 90% of prostitutes were, were trafficked or sexually abused as children or teens. It's tragic. See, what evil did is evil abused them and treated them like objects, and then they started to believe that lie and treat themselves like just objects to be used. But the key is seeing the masterpiece God created, seeing their identity as that and, and trusting God to restore that identity. It's the change that we all need in reality. So we start by seeing the masterpiece in ourselves and then calling out the masterpiece in others. And look, you know, if you have a hard time looking past immoral behaviors that others do, or maybe political pontification that others do. Or maybe the racism that you sense in others. Or maybe the judgmental mud that you see in others. 
Here's what I advise you to do. Pray for that person. Start to pray and ask God, God, what is it you see in that person that you said was worth dying for? Because that's how much he valued them. Jesus died for them. Start asking, what, is, what are the good qualities, the masterpiece you created them to be, and, and then I will speak that into their lives. You start to do that and watch how it changes you and everyone around you. And then third, we see the masterpiece in ourselves, we call it out on others, and we encourage each other to trust the master artist. See, our creator is an artist who created us for love, but love can't be forced, right? And that's why God doesn't force change. He works with our willingness to trust him in the restoration process. But friends, as we create communities of grace-giving acceptance, as we call out the masterpiece in each other, as we encourage each other to trust God more and more, he creates us as life-giving people who can love others life by life. And friends, that changes the world. That's what we've been seeing God do. It's what he did 2,000 years ago. It's what he's doing today. So are you ready to cooperate with him in what he wants to do in your life as you trust him and in what he wants you to do in a community of others as, as, you, as you grow together with us? I want you to think about that as you listen to the words of this song.